0: Hi, this is Paul. Earlier this week, I just released a short little video making some comments on on Gavin Ortland and and my friend Glenn Scrivener's video about Jordan Peterson. And the title of the video said, "Evaluating Jordan Peterson Theologically" doesn't really get at why he's an effective evangelist. And I talked a little bit about the God number one, God number two thing that I came up with a number of years ago. I've always said that the number one and number two, a lot of people complain about those. I said these are sort of boxes on my workbench because there was something that came up that I saw first in the Jordan Peterson, Weinstein, Harris conversation, Vancouver One. And. Up until, so I thought it might be fun to sort of revisit that conversation and the section, and then another critical video that sort of helped me see this in clearer terms. Now, actually, I've been reviewing some of my very early videos that once the channel started and once the channel took off and why people are watching, why people are interested, what, what is it about Jordan Peterson that makes all this stuff go? And I, I don't know how much we can know. Certainly there are a lot of theories, and I think there's a lot of truth in many of those theories, but it was in this interchange between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris that I think a lot of, finally, some compare and contrast could be made. I've also noticed now that it's it's been a few years, and so it's interesting going back and looking back at these from a few years later because obviously a ton has happened in terms of who he is, his own life, how things have developed in this little community around myself and John Ravakey and Jonathan Peugeot. We've seen people go through trajectory. Many of you have had pretty dramatic changes in your life. Some of you are just sort of at the beginning of that. Others who are further into this have gone further. So I thought it might be good to sort of go back and look at this and hear it again with, um, with our ears of today. So, and I'll be, again, this has been viewed, this is Peterson's, so this is a half a million views on this. The Pangburn one probably has more. Remember, Pangburn sort of set these things up and then he didn't manage things and the whole thing collapsed, but there's still someone putting out videos on Pangburn's channel, which is mostly sort of re-editing and repackaging of a lot of the stuff that Pangburn put out.
1: Profound of such texts is the idea that the process by which your knowledge is updated has to occupy a position in the hierarchy of values that supersedes your reliance on dogma is the fundamental claim.
0: Okay, and even right away you begin to hear some of the stuff that we are all well familiar with in terms of talking about hierarchies and talking about a hierarchy of values, something that filters, and we can connect this up with John Vervecki's relevance realization stuff. And this now, after a number of years, often the way learning goes, you hear something for the first time and it's like, well, what does that mean? But after you live with it for a while and it sort of takes up residence in your
1: world, you
0: have a better handle on it.
1: That's why, for example, in Christianity, the notion is, is that the word is the highest of values. And that's the embodied word. And that's the thing that mediates between order and chaos and everything else has to be subject to that. And I would say that's not a claim that's unique to Christianity. So for example, okay, you no, see- Okay, I think, I no,
2: think I think because we're, we're being told we're out of time yeah. here. So I wanna give Sam his reaction to that as well, and then we'll move on to Q and A.
0: Now, Sam's gonna kind of cut to the chase in terms of this conversation, in terms of what everyone is looking at, and he's gonna frame it in sort of the new atheist view. Is there a God or isn't it? And what does that mean? I thought about this a lot over the last five years because, again, it's sort of framed in a new atheist way as is there a super thing in the sky? Is there a flying spaghetti monster, et cetera, et cetera? It's not a great framing of it. I think what it really boils down to is can I have a productive relationship with being, existence, the universe. We can use all of these names that have sort of flushed in because God has become and been reduced down to sort of a super thing in the sky. And that's what I'm going to get at with the second video after this one that is completely disconnected from this one. So right away, Jordan Peterson is talking about the fact, let's go back to sort of first principles here in terms of Cognitive science, in terms of what in science has blown apart a world of objects, which is where Jordan Peterson starts Maps of Meaning. The problem with the world of objects is that there are too many objects in the world, number one, for us to track. And so we have to ask the question, how how do we process a world that has too many things to pay attention to? The answer to that is that and I've used this example many times, I walk into my office, my office is filled with objects. I'm not overwhelmed by walking into my office because there's a value hierarchy that says, okay, I'm probably going to turn on my computer and I already got things queued up in terms of what I have to do today and off I go. I completely ignore the all the other clutter in this office so that I get at what's there. Okay, what about this value hierarchy? Where does it come from? Well, that's, that's pretty complicated because it's been growing in my life. It's received from a, a first draft from my parents. Um, I certainly have input from my culture. I've been formed in a certain way, and I have this value hierarchy. And, and Jordan Peterson very much connects this with God. Now, that's not, in terms of the focal point through which we operate with the world, that very much can have the sense of an agent, but it is more than just another thing in my office. It is in some ways a thing beneath my office. And in this sense, I often use the example of Tolkien. Can Aragorn Ranger look for Tolkien in Middle Earth? Will Aragorn find Tolkien in Middle Earth? Uh, no, because Tolkien isn't so much an agent, a, another thing in Middle Earth, but there's almost no place in Middle Earth that he can't go to bump into Tolkien. And so you have this interesting dynamic. And so Jordan is making the, the point that all of us, without our awareness, operate in a certain way that is productive in the world. And that what we mean by this idea of God is connected with these value hierarchies, is connected with how we process the world in and of itself. Now, we're an hour and 20 minutes into this, and Jordan basically, for the first hour, has been trying to, one way or another, make this point to Sam. And I think part of why he hopes Sam can understand this is because, of course, Sam does have an advanced degree, and he's hoping that, well, surely, Sam, you know this, but Sam again get keeps getting fixated on God as yet another thing in the world. We're going to talk about so God as a God as an agent in the world is God number two. God as the arena in which we live and move or have our being. You can use that from the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts when he's quoting pagan poets, God number one. So there's my one number one and number two. Okay, let's go a little bit further.
3: Well, I'm tempted to just ask Jordan a question here. I mean, I, this, it's hard to know what to save for tomorrow night, but I, I feel yeah. like we've got 3,000 people sitting here who would really like an answer to this question. Uh, you say you believe in God. You have been... No, I say I act as if he exists. You say What?
1: I say I act as if he exists, okay, so, which is a much
3: more precise claim. Okay, so, so then what, what, but in this case, what, the t- so you act as though God exists, yep. and in addition, I've heard you say that I act as though God exists, that I'm, I can't really well, be so an atheist. Well, so far, I, so far it seems yeah, that. Right, yeah. <laughs> we'll so, see. The, the, night is-
0: the night is young. Now, again, if you think about, okay, do you believe, so you've got Aragorn, and Saruman talking. (laughs) We'll have Sam Harris be Saruman, and we'll have Jordan Peterson be Aragorn. We can have Jordan Peterson be Gandalf. thing is, Saruman wouldn't debate this because Saruman would... Well, Aragorn could say to Saruman, you act like Tolkien exists. No, 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 no. Tolkien. If there's some human being running around named Tolkien. No, Sam, you don't understand what I'm saying. And this just went back and forth, back and forth. And then they go more nights and it goes back and forth and back and forth. But you notice that they're sort of competing about frames here because Sam wants to get down to this frame. And so if he can get Sam in this frame, he can win because there's this frame. Is there a super thing in the sky? Can we find Tolkien maybe bumbling around the the shire somewhere and lay hands on him and say, aha, we have found Tolkien. We have evidence for Tolkien. Here he is. And Peterson's like, that's not exactly what I'm talking about when I'm talking about God. And Peterson, of course, famously had been very... um. Adverse to ditching the framing that everyone wanted to frame this in.
3: I was young. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so in that sense, I'm not really an atheist. I've I've heard you say this. So that it, 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 well, to,
1: some of you is.
3: Well, in, if I were really an atheist, I would be b- far more poorly behaved than in fact I am. Right. I would be like Raskolnikov committing murders and and assuming there was. No
0: Okay, now let's understand this a little bit better as well. In other words, what Peterson had just been talking about is this value hierarchy. And what Peterson is saying, something that, of course, later on, Tom Holland would come through and demonstrate, and others had demonstrated it as well many times, that part of what makes Sam tick, part of what makes Sam have this idea of good and bad and right and wrong has been deeply formed by his civilization and his culture, and God is in that system. Sort of like some of what makes Saruman operate, and some of what makes Aragorn operate. Although Saruman and Aragorn have a degree of independence from Tolkien, and authors sort sort of know this because authors become real, or characters become real to their authors, and and authors that betray their characters, the characters sort of disappear. They sort of disintegrate. So, so Peterson is making the point that no, this is this is different than what you're thinking here, Sam.
3: Nothing it, wrong would be with more,
0: it. it would be
1: more likely yes
2: yeah okay so so I mean, that's a big distinction
1: i, need, would, to, yeah, I need to know would be more what was that it's a big
2: distinction that you would is very different than it would be more likely taking the safety off the gun is not the same thing as shooting it
0: right yeah. okay now brett of course much later on we'll have much more time to unpack brett's idea of metaphorical truth which i think is I understand what he's pointing at, but his framing, I think, is deeply problematic. Yeah, so the
1: temptations laid open to Raskolnikov would be more at hand, okay. just as they were
3: to him. So, what in, that, so in, in what sense do you mean, what is the God that you act as though he, she, it exists? Okay, now we're getting to a much
0: more productive
3: question and what is the what what is the god-shaped thing i must have in my life to prevent me from being a quote real atheist
0: now notice how we even frame that god-shaped thing and again we're contending with not only do we have the problem that when i walk into my office there are more objects than i can hopeful that i can possibly deal with part of which is because this office is filled with books and in each of this bo- these books there is well is there Here's a really cool book that someone sent me. And one of you probably knows who you are because I don't know who you are. And it looks like a really cool book. And I really want to read it. And I haven't read it yet. And there's a world in this book. But in a funny way, this book is a thing. But, you know, books always have this sort of character that is the book. Is this actually a thing? Now, this gets to Jonathan Peugeot and the chair. Um, it is a book, and we can all say that and we use it, and book is a nice word, and you all sort of know what I'm talking about. Is the book actually contained in this physical object? You say, well, because I could burn this object and the book would continue to be here. And there's a lot of this stuff that goes on in in this back and forth between Peterson and 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 Harris, because even if every single copy of this book were to be burned, would the book be destroyed? You begin to realize it's a very difficult question. And so, so what has happened over the last number of years is that people begin to realize that things aren't the best way to track the world because we don't really track the world. I, for This book came a couple of weeks ago, and I haven't opened it yet. I look at the title, I look at the cover, uh, The Return of Religion After Mao. Oh, that sounds really interesting because, of course, China's been on a very interesting trajectory and I'd, I'd very much like to read this book. I've got lots more books back here I'd like to read and and haven't really taken them in yet. So it, it's not quite so simple. And then when we're talking about God and what that word has been connected to in the history of English. We're speaking, we're using English right now, but all the different languages it's been in on and on and on and on. This, This is not something, and this is again something Peterson has been pointing to all along, is that let's have a let's let's if we actually want to do anything with this question, let's have a little bit of care. And so now now Sam is sort of instead of just framing it in this new age YouTube business about uh, God or no God, tell me now. And, and basically the, the answer that that question is usually, if you close your eyes, can you determine the next president of the United States just by asking for it quietly in your mind? That's sort of what the question is boiled down to. And and Peterson's been resisting that all along. He says this is this is a far more complex conversation than just can I close my eyes and think, hmm, I want, I, I, I have absolutely no idea who I'd want for
1: President of the United States, quite frankly. Um, well, okay, first of all, I have to point out that there's no possible way I can answer both those questions in two minutes.
3: Well, it's, it's, it's the same question. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, what, is, okay. is like, what what do you mean by God?
1: Okay, well, I'm going to tell you some of the things that I mean by God.
3: Okay? Uh-oh. Uh, we, we do have
0: to get the question. Maybe we're going to do this tomorrow. Yeah, maybe this... And I'm going to tell you some of the things I mean by God, and then we're going to talk about this a little bit. This is where we, we start.
2: Seems so. like
1: that constant.
2: Be deliberate about time.
1: Okay, okay, okay. Well, I'm 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 going to read some things that I wrote because it's so complicated that I'm not sure that I can just spin it off the top of my head, and so you'll have.
0: And of course, Peterson's often mocked for this. Partly because everyone sort of wants, what everybody wants to, the the debate, the tug of war around Peterson with respect to this question is very much a tribal debate where we want to leverage Jordan Peterson and his fame, um, his fame or his notoriety for our team or against our team, yada, yada, yada. But I listened to this video quite a few times because first someone in the audience sent me a bootleg copy because the the event happened and there's like no you have to wait for it and then um and then the real copies came out and I'd listened to this a number of times and when I listened to this I thought I've heard a lot of this stuff before because one of the things that as a Protestant Christian minister there are very early reformation documents that came to the fore And they became doctrinal statements of my denomination, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgian Confession. These are two early statements. And when I listened to Peterson, I recognized some of the thinking in there, because I'd always noted that in these early reformational statements, they spoke in a way that a little bit later, other reformational statements kind of walked away from. And you find this because, actually, as you find many people on YouTube say, many of the Many of the early Reformation figures, uh, Martin Luther, of course, first wave, John Calvin, second wave, these people were steeped in medieval theology, church fathers, and all of this thing, because that was, that basically was the formation. And then things continued to change. But I listened to this God that Jordan Peterson described, and I thought about, many of the strange kinds of things that I had read growing up in these documents and thought, hmm, this is really interesting because I noticed that God for Jordan Peterson or the one that Jordan Peterson describes, now this is upon much later reflection, is much more akin to what the Apostle Paul pointed to in the book of Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. It's sort of like Tolkien relates to Middle Earth. The the some of these the the things some of the statements in some of these doctrinal statements that caught my eye were if god were to basically stop paying attention paying attention to the world the world would disappear and i thought hmm. because growing up i had very much been formed in many of the assumptions that let's say sam harris carried into this conversation and Sarah, sam harris got that honestly he's just listening to christians and he doesn't really probably know it very well from the inside out, and most Christians have sort of been into this. But then when I listened to Jordan Peterson, I said, there's something very old that he's pointing to, and Sam doesn't, isn't understanding.
1: You to excuse me. So, and what I'm going to do is sort of paint a picture by, by, by highlighting different things. So now I already made one point here. I made the point that part of the conception of God that underlies the Western ethos is the notion that whatever God is is expressed in the truthful speech that rectifies pathological hierarchies. And that isn't all it does. It also confronts the chaos of being itself and generates habitable order. That's that's the metaphysical proposition.
0: So you can see already that, that God is built into the world now, as I mentioned in my Sam Harris video that I released this morning, Sam Harris, too, is sort of sliding into phenomenology. That's sort of, that's, that's where philosophy has been going for a while. And, and so Sam Harris is sliding into phenomenology. And so when we talk about the world, we're sort of talking about it through this philosophical school that prioritizes our perception of the world. And Jonathan Peugeot has very much been in there. So you you very much see that this God that Jordan Peterson is talking about is very much in him we live and move and have our being. Another God number one and God number two text that I use sometimes is Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's far away. The whole earth is full of his glory. What, What Jordan Peterson is talking about is is the god we bump into is the tolkien aragorn bumps into as he walks around middle earth It's built into the environment that aragorn sees and engages
1: with and that that's best conceptualized as at least one element of god and so i would think about it as a transcendent reality that's only observable across the longest of time frames the longest of iterated time frames to your point so, so okay, so here's, here's some propositions, and they're complicated.
3: Now,
0: let's, let's pay attention to the time frame thing, because, again, there's a phenomenological underpinning to this. Let's say, for example, oh, I can use my own childhood for this. I grew up uh, surrounded, and I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, and all around me were, and Patterson is a tightly packed city, and filled when I was growing up with African Americans. And so my perceptual universe was made up of Patterson, which was tightly packed, filled with African Americans, and then also some suburbs, which were much more white around Patterson, but the people per square inch in the suburbs was a lot thinner. And the white people were out there, and then every now and then we would travel a little little bit ways away to family and other places. And that was even more rural, so the, the white people were even more um, dispersed. And so growing up, I always thought, well, America is, there's a lot of black people in America. Because that was my perception of it. I was a news um I was a news junkie even as a kid I would always my parents always watched the news so I'd watch the news with them and I became very interested in the news and all the kinds of things that I'd hear or see on the news and and then one day I came across somebody making a statistics that African-Americans were about 10 percent of the American population and I heard that I understood what 10 percent was and I thought that's got to be wrong because the perception of my world is that African Americans must be 60 70 80% of America because 60 70 80% of the people I know are black. And they seem to, you know, they seem there seem to be lots of them. And well, no, I was wrong. It was a perceptual question. And, and and what what Jordan makes the point of is that It's sort of like if you lived on a mountainside and you never went more than a mile from your home, you may very well think that the world is sort of like a bad man's lair in the old Batman TV show because it's all crooked. It's not until you come off the mountain that. And the problem with human beings is we live just this short time. And so Jordan makes the point that if actually you want to be able to have a bit of experiential, bit of experience about this, God, you're going to have to deal with time because our perceptions are very small and our world picture is shaped by those perceptions. So you're going to have to deal with time.
1: And they need to be unpacked. So I'm just going to read them and that'll have to do for the time being. So God is how we imaginatively and collectively represent the existence and action of consciousness across time as the most real aspects of existence manifest themselves.
0: Now, if you heard that right there, when he's talking to Sam Harris now, five years later, Jordan has basically figured out that for Sam, in terms of how these things function in Sam, if you look at Sam's worldview that he articulated in his conversation, God and consciousness are fairly close together. Because when Sam talks about you know, the, the one thing that is inescapable in a very Cartesian way is consciousness. And so, basically, Jordan says, okay, actually for Sam, when, when you say consciousness, historically, you're probably getting close to this God term in terms of how this functions. Now, I know, I understand that you watch religious people and they go to church and they pray and and they, they're asking for parking spaces and they're asking for miracles and they're, they're they're doing all of these things. I get that, I get that. And you associate all of what they're praying to Jesus or Allah or God or the Tetragrammaton or whatever, you're thinking about an old man with a beard and blame Michelangelo. And, you know, myself and Father Eric had, you know, and he agreed with me that, you know, the Roman Catholic should not be painting uh people that look like me and calling them god because it tends to lead to what sam is talking about so but fair enough we have christianity jesus is god i get it i'm a trinitarian i have an orthodox christology yada 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 but consciousness sam when when you talk about consciousness that's not you know you're 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 at least beginning to get into the foothills of what this word means, at least what Jordan Peterson understands this word to mean.
1: Across. God is how we imaginatively and collectively represent the existence and action of consciousness across time as the most real aspects of existence manifest themselves across the longest of time frames, but are not necessarily apprehensible as objects in the here and now. So what that means in some sense is that you have conceptions of reality built into your biological and metaphysical structure that are a consequence of processes of evolution that, that occurred over unbelievably vast expanses of time and that structure your perception of reality in ways that it wouldn't be structured if you only lived for the amount of time that you're going to live. And that's also part of the problem of deriving values from facts because you're evanescent and, and you can't derive the right values from the facts that por- portray themselves to you in your lifespan, which is why.
0: Okay, so again, you've got the Tolkien-Middle Earth complex here that that God is already so built into the systems that we are using to navigate this world, and again, that's part of why Jordan said to Sam, what he said.
1: Why you have a biological structure that's like 3.5 billion years old. So God is that which eternally dies and is reborn in the pursuit of higher being and truth. That's a fundamental element of hero mythology. God is the highest value in the hierarchy of values. That's another way of looking at it. God is what calls and what responds in the eternal call to adventure. God is the voice of conscience. God is the source of judgment and mercy and guilt. God is the future to which we make sacrifices and something akin to the transcendental repository of reputation. Here's a cool one if you're an evolutionary biologist. God God is that which selects among men in the eternal hierarchy of men. So you know men arrange themselves into hierarchies and then men rise in the hierarchy and there's principles that are important that determine the probability of their rise and those principles aren't tyrannical power they're something like the ability to articulate truth and the ability to be competent and the ability to make appropriate moral judgments and if you and again
0: i mean all the stuff that he's just said we've heard him talking about this stuff for the last five years and in fact continuing to refine it and refine his language he's had a bigger audience but this is all God that's built into the system. The whole earth is full of His glory. In Him we live and move and have our being. That's what I call God number one. And you can't—it's—it's it's the Tolkien that isn't in Middle Earth. Even if the Black Riders coming to the Shire can, can you know, can flip over all the beds and look in all the cupboards, and they'll never find him, because you're misunderstanding what we're talking about.
1: If you can do that in a given situation, then all the other men will vote you up the hierarchy, so to speak, and that will radically increase your reproductive fitness. And the operation of that process across long expanses of time looks to me like it's codified in something like the notion of God the Father. It's also the same thing that makes women, men attractive to women, because men, women peel off the top of the male hierarchy. and the question is, what should be at the top of the hierarchy? And the answer right now is tyranny as part of the patriarchy, but the real answer is something more like the ability to use truthful speech in the service of, let's say, well-being. And so that's that's something that operates across tremendous expanses of time, and it plays a role in the selection for survival itself, which makes it a fundamental reality. Remember, he's
0: answering the question, what do you mean by God? And he's saying, all of this stuff, God is. God is in a in a way but again i mean does tolkien make up middle earth um so so here's the lord of the earth and you might say well wait a minute is 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 that a book oh no it's a, it's a kindle book oh it doesn't have paper okay well where's where's tolkien in this book well, you can't go anywhere in this book and not see Tolkien. But Tolkien's not in the book. Now again, there's um, Dorothy Sayers, writes herself into one of her mystery novels, but y- you begin to understand the complexity of this. And this is some of the complexity that, that Peterson is pointing to. And and Sam either can't get it or doesn't want to get it or just isn't getting it at the moment or or what have you. Because in some ways, God, and this is sort of how it's been functioning. I've talked a little bit about, you know, all the evolutionary psychology. Um, Evolutionary psychology is something that points to God. We don't want to say that word. Well, why? Well, because of the, so again, it's sort of the agentic aspects of it. And so when Peterson talks, people are sort of divided because, you know, especially Christians that are very used to relating to God. In a very personal way i've talked about i laid all this out a number of years ago with john verveke i said you know the the spirit of finesse is really the proper mode for us to engage something of this magnitude not the spirit of geometry so
1: jordan if i can
0: just
3: cut in here with one question Uh, stop with that for now what
0: and, and of course you know when i listened to that i thought i know what he's talking about now In him, we live and move and have our being. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the arenic God. But now, Sam doesn't get this at all.
3: So I I was not hearing in that list of attributes a God who could care if anyone masturbated. Uh. Ah, caring.
0: So here's a conversation just posted yesterday between John Verveke and my friend Sam Tideman. And Sam, not only you often see him in his office in the corner doing Rando's conversations where we're doing live streaming and stuff and stuff like that. He has a tra- he has a tra- he has a channel called Transfigured. He's known to be our Unitarian in the corner, et cetera, et cetera. And but he also works uh, for a major tech company. And works on AI and has worked in healthcare. And so he, he begins this whole conversation asking the question about what makes a better emergency room. And it's a very difficult thing. And they're talking about AI, because Sam works on AI. And and part of what part of what so AI, it's got these large language models, are doing all of these things, but part of what they can't get these machines to do is care. And care is actually a critical aspect of agency
4: point we just made is the machines don't have intentionality not in, in not not just in the sense of working towards something but they don't care about yeah. they don't care about what's true good and beautiful they are no in no way rational agents they are not motivated to care about the meaning of what they're doing or whether or not they're self-deceived or whether they're in error. So all of that that capacity of caring, and I think that overlaps with relevance realization, is missing. They, they, they're they not... It's not just that they... Um, it's not just that we haven't figured out how to bridge between the normative and the uh, the causal. It's also, we have failed, I would argue, largely to recognize how much that's bound up with a capacity for caring about uh, the true, the good, and the beautiful in a way that matters to the agent and not to some external authority. Or
0: or caring about anything. (laughs) Now, that's really critical to this conversation, because, of course, when I talked about God number one and God number two, I said, it's not that God the Father is God number one and God the Son is God number two and the Holy Spirit is number one. No, no, no. All persons have one or number one and number two in them. If you look at the story, The Cat and the Hat, the mother is a character in that story. I don't have a copy of the book here in my office, regrettably, but about all we ever see of the mother is her leg, if I recall. And but but the the agent called Mom is an arena in which all of the drama between the cat and the hat. And the children in the home and thing one and thing two are operating. And so human beings have this amazing capacity to have both oneness and two-ness, arenish, arenic qualities and agentic qualities within us. So now Sam Harris is basically saying, hey, wait a minute. What about a God that cares if you masturbate? Okay, well, you know, that's what you want to talk about, Sam. We can talk about masturbation. Um and of course, everybody laughs because Sam is is a very articulate. Um, he's got a, he's got tremendous rhetorical skills. Okay, and part of the reason, let's say, in late antiquity, someone like Augustine, rhetoric was a very popular thing to study, was because people realized that rhetoric is powerful. But if we go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, Aristotle understood that the sophists were super clever, but to call someone a sophist today basically says, you're rhetorically clever, but your system is bankrupt, corrupt, or found wanting.
3: I was not hearing a God who... Depends on what else is
1: stopping you from doing, Sam. Uh,
3: well, I'm sorry, I missed that. Wait, what, what, I said what? it
1: depends on what else it's stopping you from doing. Well, okay.
0: And again, Sam, oh, okay. No, no. Jordan said something with that retort. It wasn't just witty and clever. It, again, got, went back to everything that Jordan had been talking about. And Sam hasn't either been paying attention to, hasn't understood, hasn't wanted to engage. I don't know the reason, but not a great conversation, partner, with respect to this. Because there's plenty to talk about. And, okay, but caring. Okay, good point caring because part of what people wrestle with with the problem of evil let's say is nathan jacobs i still have to get nathan jacobs back on the channel nathan jacobs did this cool documentary about becoming fully human and people talked about the problem of evil and a woman talked about the fact that she had a beloved uncle who was a good guy he was a smoker. He fell asleep. You used to hear about this a lot more in the 70s than you hear about it today. All the flame retardant sheets. and They did a lot of work on this. They did a lot of work on this in the environment to basically, and this is a lot of what's happened in American culture, so that the agents are in a safer space. I'll use that language. So her, her, her uncle died in a fire. Because he smoked in bed and, you know, fell asleep probably watching TV or reading and the cigarette butt and it lit the sheets on fire, lit the bed on fire. The uncle died in the fire. And she say, would it have been so hard for God to come and move the cigarette? Well, almost all the arguments that, that usually go along with says, well, do you want the kind of universe in which fire doesn't burn? Because that's part of in him we live and move and have our being and that's part of the whole earth is full of his glory because if you're freezing or if you have to cook meat or if you have to boil water boy the the, the heat of that fire is pretty important but if you're falling asleep with a cigarette in your mouth so where is God hmm well that's a difficult thing to talk about
3: so it's it's yeah, important but seri- to live but it's, it's important to do something other than masturbate
1: yes uh, Yes, which is which, which actually constitutes a problem <laughs> yeah, which is, for many which, people. Which is harder
3: than it sounds. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm not hearing a a a God, a personal God, who can possibly hear anyone's prayers, much less answer them. Right there. See, God number two. This this is this is what we're arguing. About.
0: I want to be able to close my eyes to say this prayer inside my head and determine the winner of the next presidential campaign. Please let it not be Trump. Please let it not be Biden. Um, Whatever you want to pray. That's because what I'm talking about is people who walk around imagining that they can control the universe... By saying prayers in their head, or or somehow life goes better if they go to church, and someone say, "Well, actually, life does go better if you go to church." Statistics and stuff. Oh, okay, but but that's not because they closed their eyes and and said a little prayer and something happened.
3: Right, and uh, um, so I'm just I'm wondering what percentage of religious people who who would say, "Oh, yeah, I believe in God, and it's the most important thing in my life." Uh, What percentage of those religious people do you think have in mind a god of the sort you just described? And then when he said that, I thought, oh, you might be
0: surprised because that actually gets built in believers at a very deep level that they might not be conscious of. But if you read in the old books, it's there. And that's what I recognized when I listened to Jordan Peterson's list. And I said, oh, yeah, and then, you know, then thinking about it, you know, I'm a minister, I've preached through a lot of the Bible, passages come to mind. It's like, hmm, what do you mean by that?
1: I don't know, Sam, it's a good question, because when I go talk to people, when I when I talk to people online and use exactly this terminology, millions of people listen. So it's not so yeah, obvious well, which what percentage of no. people see it this way. It's, it what may can... be that they have the intuitions, but they haven't... And in
0: fact, if people weren't listening, Sam would not have had this conversation with Jordan because enough people were listening and beginning to say things like, "Yeah, you know, I used to listen to Sam, and boy, everything he said just seemed to click and it just seemed to be right." But then I started to listen to Jordan Peterson, and then I then I then I started to want to read the Bible, and he did this Genesis series, and people came from all over the world to listen to him, and and at least one Christian minister in Sacramento saw this happening and said, "I better keep my eye on this because." Cause you know, yeah, I got stuff to do here, but this is important. Something is happening, and I better pay attention. Now, I might not be smart enough to figure the whole thing out right away, but at least I'm smart enough to pay attention to it. There's plenty of people out there, and I'm gonna get some comments in this. Why don't you not talk to Jordan Peterson, blah blah? Or no, don't talk about Jordan Peterson, blah blah blah. No, 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 no. Just because I pay attention to them doesn't mean I agree with everything. Jordan and I could have plenty of conversations about what we do and don't agree with, yada, yada. Doesn't, that doesn't make any difference. Something's going on here you have to pay attention to.
1: it been articulated well. I mean, this is, this is the problem. I, I, so it's not so yeah, obvious well, which, what percentage of no, people see it this way. It's, it may can, be that they have the intuitions, but they haven't been articulated well.
3: I mean, this is this is the problem. Uh, this is what worries me about this. So, oh, you're worried. Okay. You, I mean, you 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 could do the same thing with the idea of a, of ghosts, right? So, so people traditionally have believed in ghosts. It's a it's an archetype, you might say. The ghost, survival of death, is certainly an archetype. So they, and, and we know what most people most of the time mean when they say they believe in ghosts and i say i don't believe in ghosts a ghost <laughs> is something
0: that is not really an equivalent to how most of humanity has been organizing itself around something roughly equivalent to god
3: and you say no no you you do believe in ghosts ghosts are your relationship to the unseen that's a ghost So you have a a new definition of ghost. No one ever defines ghost that way. You're putting in in the place provided, which I have to say, well, of course, I have a relationship to the unseen. So uh, yeah, I guess I do believe in ghosts. You know, you win that argument. Uh, But that simply isn't what most people mean by a ghost. Most yeah, people but you mean, can't use
1: that simplified argument about my conception but, but, of ghosts as an analogy for the propositions but, but, that I just put forward. This
3: is what I see you do. I mean, maybe you have more to say on the topic of God, but this is what I hear you doing with God. You have defined the God that most people believe in, and we know this is the God that most people. Believe I was in.
1: asked what God I believed in. Not yes, what no, most but I'm, a- I'm
3: asking in. you what percentage. Yes, but. You, you by shifting the, the definition, you have robbed the, the noun, the traditional noun, of its traditional meaning. See, now, he didn't shift the definition, but
0: what he actually knows is a little bit of, and what he's learned through psychology, is a little bit of history. And that's why I had number one and number two, because Sam isn't totally wrong here. But... Jordan what Jordan is pointing to is unrecognizable for Sam
3: and you're giving you're imparting to people hey, a wait, a se- wait a second wait, wait a wait. second I'm, I'm not so what sure. what do you mean by
1: traditional meaning look it's one of the one of the elemental claims in the Old Testament is that you're not even supposed to utter the name of God because by defining it too tightly you lose its essence. And so, let's not be talking about what the classical definition of God is here, okay? It's a historical non-starter, okay, though, and there's plenty of religions on. that do. Can, can I
2: check in with the audience? Uh, is the audience all right with us continuing
0: down this road? No. Okay. 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 So... And everybody wanting to talk about this, why? because if jordan is just playing fast and loose with words then everybody will see it but everybody has an intuition that we're, we're actually finally trying to get to something that's important here so don't let it happen tomorrow night cuz i don't have tickets for tomorrow night
2: can i can i jump in yeah. here you're sacrificing so,
1: your q and a
2: so
3: which, which
0: always the parent
1: which actually <laughs> constitutes a problem yeah, which
3: for is, many which, people which is harder than it sounds yeah F- and I the- the- believe
1: in ghosts? I mean, Can- you- what I- the-, the-, the Testament is that you're not. In st-
2: is the audience all right? So yeah, that, that it is at the expense of Q and A. That's that's what you're giving out. Yep. But I think it's probably worth okay. it. Um, so let me say, Sam, um, I do not believe in a supernatural God, but the God that I heard Jordan just describe. I do not have any difficulty understanding why he might care if you masturbate, and I also don't have any trouble figuring out how he might answer prayers.
0: So Brett basically says, okay, Sam, I don't think you can close your eyes and you know, have an in with a guy who looks like me, maybe has better hair, but he does have a white beard and pulls levers of the universe and decides who's the
3: president. But
0: I I understand something of what Jordan is saying here.
3: Well, well, tell me more then.
0: Well, I, I can tell you, I can tell you. Sam's whole shtick is it's just obvious. I mean, you hear him say, it's just obvious. It's obvious. It's obvious. Well, the Brett says, no, wait a minute. I understand what Jordan is saying. tell me more.
1: I can tell you you how a prayer might be answered. Okay,
0: but
2: these are... uh, Well, it's specific, so so you could let
1: me do that. So
2: it'll be interesting. So I'm not Jordan. We've not talked about this. If I heard an answer from him that actually would satisfy me as to what the mechanism of action might be, that'd be pretty interesting. And if he can tell
0: me what I heard... uh, Mechanism of action. Now, that mechanism word is not unchosen if you go back I, I just did a lot of work on the jordan peterson sarah hill conversation which was excellent she's also keeps talking about mechanism Well, why do all these scientists talk about mechanisms well it's because that's what science is about under the deist revolution on disclosing mechanisms and so okay well we want you know, God number one is sort of mechanistic because, well, these early natural philosophers, what they did was they were all Christians and believers, and when they were doing their science, they thought they were learning about God. Well, wait a minute, you're dropping spheres from a tower in Italy. No, yeah, and I'm learning about God by dropping spheres. Well, that has nothing to do with God. Again, God number two, Sam Harris Harris's God. But what about God number one? In him we live and move and have our being. The whole earth is full of his glory. I, I think it would be, it would
2: suggest that that we're not just making up stories here. Okay, so so, so
1: and I, you might like this, you maybe not but well, it, it's possible. Okay, so imagine that. Okay, so let's imagine that hellish situation that you laid out. Okay, huh? but but let's let's put the extra twist in it because one of the things that we both decided, I think, was that you also have to build in the intent into that. So let's say. So okay, now
0: this goes on a little bit and. Go ahead and listen to the whole thing, but I've got a limited amount of time, so I want to get into the other video. Those have been around the channel a long time might recognize this. This is Christine Hayes, Yale Courses, lecture number two, The Hebrew Bible and its Ancient Near East Settings, Biblical Religion in Context.
5: Approaches, historical, literary, religious, cultural, and today we are going to begin our appraisal of the first portion of the Bible as the product of a religious and cultural revolution. The Bible is the product of minds that were exposed to and influenced by and reacting to the ideas and cultures of their day. And as I suggested in the opening lecture, comparative study of the literature of the Ancient Near East and the Bible reveals the shared cultural and literary heritage at the same time that it reveals great differences between the two. In the literature of the Bible, some members of Israelite society, probably a cultural, religious, and literary elite, broke radically with the prevailing norms of the day. They mounted a critique of prevailing norms. The persons responsible for the final editing and shaping of the Bible, somewhere from the seventh to the fifth or fourth century BCE, Right, we're not totally sure and we'll talk more about that. But those final editors were members of this group, and they had a specific worldview, and they imposed that worldview on the older traditions and stories that are found in the Bible. Um, that radical new worldview in the Bible was monotheism. But why, you might ask, should the idea of one God instead of many be so radical? What is so different? What's different about having a one God? Um, from having a pantheon of gods headed by a superior god. What is so new and revolutionary about monotheism? Well, according to one school of thought, there isn't anything particularly revolutionary about monotheism. And the classical account of the rise of monotheism that has prevailed for a very long time runs as follows, and I have a little flowchart here to illustrate it for you. The argument goes that in every society there's a natural progression a natural progression from polytheism which is the belief in many
0: now what she's about to lay out as the alternative to what she will eventually talk about is I it's basically evolutionary monotheism that monotheism develops in an evolutionary process and this is basically what you hear Jordan Peterson talk about sometime and she's going to suggest something other
5: gods usually these are personifications of natural forces To henotheism, heno one god, um, or monolatry, which is really the worship of one god as supreme over other gods, so not denying the existence of the other gods, ascribing reality to them, but um, isolating one as the supreme god, and on to monotheism, where essentially one believes only in the reality of one god. And in the 18th and 19th centuries, this progression was viewed as an advance, which as an advance, which is not very surprising because the whole theory was put forward by um, scholars who were basically Western monotheists. And these scholars maintained that certain elements of biblical religion represented pure religion. Religion evolved to its highest form, no longer tainted by pagan and, and polytheistic elements of Canaanite religion generally. So applying an evolutionary model to religion carried with it a very clear value judgment. Um, Polytheism was understood as clearly inferior and primitive. Monolatry was an improvement. right? It was getting better. It was getting closer. But monotheism was judged to be the best and purest form of religion. And at first, the great um, archaeological discoveries that I talked about last time in the nineteenth century seemed to support this claim that Israelite monotheism had evolved from um, ancient Near Eastern polytheism. Cuneiform tablets that were inscribed with the great literature of Mesopotamian civilizations were uncovered, and when they were deciphered, they shed astonishing light on biblical religion. And these discoveries led to a kind of parallelomania. That's how it's referred to in the literature. Scholars delighted in pointing out all of the parallels in theme and language and plot and structure between biblical stories and ancient Near Eastern stories. So more than a thousand years before the Israelite legend of Noah and the Ark, you have Mesopotamians telling the story of Zeus or in some versions Utnapishtim, who also survived a great flood by building an ark on the instruction of a deity, and the flood destroys all life and he sends out birds to scout out the dry land and so on. So with parallels like these, it was argued, it was clear that the religion of the Israelites was not so different from the religions of their their polytheistic or pagan neighbors. They also had a creation story. They had a flood story. They did animal sacrifices. They observed purity taboos. Israelite religion was another ancient Near Eastern religion, and they differed from their neighbors only over the number of gods they worshipped, one or many. It was just a more refined, more highly evolved version of ancient Near Eastern religion. Well, this uh, view, this evolutionary view or evolutionary model, was challenged by a man named Yechezkel Kaufman Kaufman in the 1930s, and Kaufman argued that monotheism does not (laughs) and cannot evolve from polytheism because the two are based on radically divergent worldviews, radically divergent intuitions about reality. And in a multi volume work, uh, which was later translated and abridged, and you've got a selection of reading from the translated abridgment, so it's translated by Moshe Greenberg, an abridged uh, version of his massive work, The Religion of Israel, Kaufman asserted that the monotheism of Israel wasn't, it couldn't be, the natural outgrowth of the polytheism of an earlier age. It was a radical break with it, it was a total cultural and religious discontinuity. It was a polemic against polytheism and the pagan worldview. That's implicit, he says, throughout the biblical text. It's been said that Kaufman replaces the evolutionary model with a revolutionary model. This was a revolution, not an evolution. Now, one advantage of Kaufman's model is that we avoid some of this pejorative, we can avoid, avoid some of the pejorative evaluations of polytheism as primitive. Right, as necessarily earlier and primitive inf- and 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 inferior. You're simply positing the existence of two distinct orientations, two divergent worldviews. They each have their explanatory merits, and they each have their specific problems and difficulties. It's not to say that Kaufman wasn't clearly judgmental, but at least what the potential is there for us to understand these as two distinct systems. Um, each, again, as I say, with its explanatory merits. But as we'll see, some of the things that monotheism um, solves. Um, only invite other sorts of problems that it has to wrestle with throughout its long life. Now, in Kaufman's view, the similarities, therefore, between the Israelites and ancient Near Eastern religion and cultures that everyone was so busily finding and celebrating, these were in the end similarities in form and external structure, appearance. They weren't essential similarities. They differed in content. Sure, they both have animal sacrifice. Sure, they both have ritual purity laws. Sure, they share certain stories and legends. But these have been adopted by the Israelites and transformed, transformed into vehicles that convey the basic ideas of the monotheistic worldview. Uh, so, a similarity in form doesn't mean a similarity in function. And in this, Kaufman's anticipating arguments made by anthropologists. The ritual cult of the Israelites may look like that of their neighbors, but it functioned very differently. Its purpose was drastically different from that of Israel's neighbors. The Israelites, like their neighbors, may have set up a king over themselves, but Israelite monarchy differed from Canaanite monarchy in significant ways because of their monotheism. These are all things we will test and explore. So the meaning and function of Israel's cult, of Israel's king, of its creation stories or any of its other narratives, they derive from the place of those items within the larger cultural framework or worldview of Israel, and that larger framework or worldview is one of basic monotheism. So let's turn then to Kaufman's description of the fundamental distinction between the polytheistic worldview and the revolutionary monotheistic worldview that took root in Israel. And um, I am going to be rehearsing and then critiquing the arguments that are in that hundred-page reading that I assigned for you this week, this is the only time something like this will happen in the course. And I do that because these ideas are so fundamental and we are going to be wrestling with them throughout the course. So it's important to me that you absorb this stuff right from the beginning and think about it and be critical of it and and engage it. Um, Kaufman's ideas are very important. They're also overstated in some ways and that's why we're going to be wrestling with some of these ideas throughout the course. So let's begin with Kaufman's characterization of what he calls pagan religion. Right? That's the term that he uses. The fundamental idea of pagan religion, he says, and I quote, the idea that there exists a realm of being prior to the gods and above them, upon which they depend and whose decrees even they must obey, the meta-divine realm.
0: OK, listen to that again
5: this they and above them. idea that there exists a realm of being prior to the gods and above them, upon which they depend and whose decrees even they must obey. The meta-divine realm.
0: Functionally, that is exactly the situation we find ourselves if you begin the story of the universe from a physicalist, materialist starting point. That, well, these gods are things that human beings make up. And therefore, these gods are subject to human psychology. These gods are subject to all of these things. But fundamentally, there's a metadivine realm into which all of these fictitious gods that we are projecting up into the sky work. Now, of course, the ancients didn't see it that way. They have their, they have their myths of how these gods were formed, et cetera, et cetera. But notice that there is, in fact, an impersonal space into which personal agency of caring and action come and colonize the rest of the world, but they are still subject to that impersonal space.
5: This is the realm of supreme and ultimate power, and it transcends the deities. All right, the deity or the deities...
0: So physics is this realm, wherever you imagine that these laws of physics came from, this is the realm of supreme ultimate space, and it transcends the deity. That's why you have this fetus... fetus... fetus, fetis. This, this fetus around this world, su- this word supernatural. And that, that, that is just a, a complete fetus, and it's basically because of the scientific lab leak.
5: Emerge from, and are therefore subject to the laws of the meta-divine realm, the forces and powers of the meta-divine realm. And the nature of this realm will vary from pagan tradition to pagan tradition. It might be water, it might be darkness, it might be spirit, or in, um, ancient Greek religion, um, a more sort of philosophical polytheism, it might be fate. Even the gods are subject to the decrees of fate. They have no control over that. Kaufman asserts, therefore, this this belief, once you posit a primordial realm, some realm that is beside or beyond the gods, that's independent of them and primary, you have automatically limited the gods. So what I've done is I've spelled out here for you consequences, logical consequences, of, of positing a meta divine realm. You know, once you have a meta divine realm, all of these things are going to follow. The gods are going to be limited. All right? They are not the source of all. They are bound by, they're subservient to this meta divine realm. There can therefore be no notion of a supreme divine will, an absolute or sovereign divine will. The will of any one god ultimately can be countered by the decrees of the primordial realm, and the will the will of all the gods can be thwarted by the decrees of the primordial realm. The will of any one god can be thwarted by perhaps another uh, god. All right? So the gods are limited in power. They're also limited in their wisdom right? that falls under this as well. They're not going to be all-knowing or, or, or all-wise because of the existence of this realm that's beyond them and which is in many ways mysterious to them as well. It's unpredictable to them too. It's not in their control or in their power. Individual gods might be very wise. They might be wise in particular crafts. Um, They might be a god of healing, very, very wise in healing, or a god of some other um, craft or area of knowledge, but they possess wisdom um, as an attribute, not as an essential characteristic. Kaufman asserts that mythology is basic to pagan religions. Mythologies are the lives or tales of the lives of gods, tales of the lives of the gods. In pagan religions, The gods are born, and they live lives very similar to human lives but on a grand scale, and then they die. They might be reborn, too. Pagan religions contain theogonies, the birth of a god, theogony, accounts of the births of gods. Now, this impersonal primordial realm, Kaufman declares, contains the seeds of all beings. Very often in these creation stories there is some sense of some realm from which life begins to emerge, usually beginning with God.
0: All right, I gave you a sense of it. And you can, the link will be below. You can watch the whole thing and you can get a good sense of it. The heart of this is that for the Hebrews, well, in him we live and move and have our being. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's an agentic aspect to God. And that agentic aspect is an aspect that we live within. Now, this gets insanely complex and christine hayes now she takes this whole thing from sort of a a modernist um scholastic approach and but her, her course is her course is excellent it's it's very much worth listening to the whole thing and it's free on youtube you and just listen to it and write in the yale thing like Kaufman's book unfortunately is difficult to get because i started talking about it and everybody scooped up the copies that were out there used and the remaining ones got crazy expensive so But this is kind of what's going on here. That part of what happens with Deism is that, in a sense, there is another meta-divine realm created, and God is then reduced to kind of a pagan god. And then in the 19th and 20th century, we see all of that. Well, there's the Hebrews have their God, and the Greeks have their God, and and you see that again and again and again. But no, it's different. And, of course, then with Christianity, of course, when with the incarnation of Christ, well, this is going to get even more complex because now, although in the Old Testament, the Lord is very clearly an agent. The Lord walks with the man and the woman in the garden. The Lord debates with Abraham the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord chooses Israel. The Lord... But God has that dual quality. He is both arena and agent now that's very short dip into what is i've talked about for years now on this channel with respect to these issues but that is in many ways what is behind a lot of this conversation where well, we can play a little bit more
1: it, the hell that we're talking about isn't the victim of the terrible massacres that you you, you laid out in the jungle story but a perpetrator Okay, so someone who's actually acted in a malevolent manner, truly malevolent manner. Okay, or, or maybe perhaps we wouldn't have to take that extreme case, we could say, well, perhaps you've decided that, any of you, you've decided that you've seriously done something wrong. Okay, and that you, you wanna get away from hell, you wanna make things better. Okay, so here's, here's an exercise you can try. So here, what you do is, is, is you sit on the edge of your bed and you say, okay, What I did was wrong. And and you have to really believe this, right? So you've thought about it. It's killing you. It's killing you. So now you're penitent and you're confessing, let's say. And you're confessing to yourself as much as to anyone. And you say, I really want to know what I did wrong. And I really want to know what I could do to put it right. And I'm willing to accept any answer that will manifest itself to me. Try that. See what happens. Well, I, That's a prayer that will be answered, and it won't be answered in the way that you want it to be answered. I can bloody well tell you that.
3: Okay, but but that...
1: Well, what are you communicating that, with that, when you do that? What is, are you communicating with when no, no, you do no, that? No, no, no,
3: that, that is something that, that is a process that I'm familiar with. It doesn't require any supernatural explanation, and it certainly, it certainly doesn't require that we imagine that any of our books were dictated by the creator of the universe. I didn't say that it so, required
0: a- Again, notice where he goes back to. But Peterson is, I mean, he's landed a blow here because what everyone has to admit is I don't know what happens. I don't know who hears. I don't know why something like this seems to move the universe. And I... And, and, of course, Christians all over who pray every day will say, yes, I completely understand that if I close my eyes, I don't pick the next president of the United States. I get that. But I am still doing something and participating in something that is bigger than myself, and I can't fully understand it. But it's real.
1: Any supernatural oh, okay, no, but, well, or that it
3: required uh, the my book. Concerns... I was
1: asked to provide an instance of prayer that worked, and that's what I did. I didn't oh, okay, do anything but that, other than that.
3: That's, un- that's fully understandable in terms of human psychology and... It's not understandable because we don't know where the answer comes from. Well, we don't know where anything comes from. That's true. Yeah, okay, so... <laughs> he could have said, ah,
0: gotcha. Uh,
3: yeah. But that doesn't, that doesn't open the door. I mean, that we, one thing we can know with absolute certainty is that, that whoever wrote the Bible didn't know either. And there's many other things he or she didn't know, like everything else we know scientifically, right? It's, so not, it's not so obvious what no, people know no and even, what they don't know. No one know. even knew the brain was involved in any of this. Right. So, yeah, but so, they probably so, knew about okay. as much as
1: we do about how the brain was involved in it. But we've already
2: we've already established in some tenuous way that things that nobody understands could have evolved into these stories in some way that would be useful, but nobody knew what they
3: were writing when they wrote it, right? The, the, the problem is that you can... So, again, this has been focused through the lens of your attachment to Christianity, largely, but the yeah. Hinduism, Hinduism is a completely different... Uh, They're going to go for a while. Sam is saying, well, Christians don't have magic.
0: Do you know what Christianity says about magic? Why on earth did Saul have so much trouble finding that witch of Endor? So what Jordan does here is Jordan brings back into the culture Basically, in some ways, revolutionary monotheism. Because suddenly we have to realize that. The other day I thought about the fact that, you know, I, again and again you hear these new atheists sort of scoffing, scoffing at um, uh, a, 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 a universe where the earth is at the center of. Now, for a very long time, once that scoffing started, a lot of classists, classicists like C.S. Lewis, were saying, oh, well, wait a minute, that's not exactly fair. When you say the, the earth is the center, that's not really where the earth was. This this ancient and medieval conceptualization of cosmology, actually, Earth was sort of at the bottom. And and when you look at essentially what we did. When we decided that human beings are the only agents in the universe that matter, oh, maybe there's aliens off someplace else, but human beings are the only agents that matter in the universe. Okay, so maybe, so, so maybe you're you're crowing about a change in geography and cosmology, but we, what you've really done is, and this gets into the meaning crisis. What you've really done is taken out all other agency in the universe and placed us at the top. The difficulty, of course, is that there are so many of us and we don't agree and we don't get along and so we have wars and now we're at the precipice of maybe killing ourselves in the meta-crisis. But we really did destroy everything else in our map in the universe and left ourselves in charge. And the thought that we might not be in control, and the ancients actually knew some things that we don't, which, of course, they knew a lot of things that we don't. That's why uh, we read history and, like, Boy, I really wonder what was going on there. Well, they kind of knew something of that, too. That the world is different. And what has happened over the last five years is, basically, Jordan has been winning and Sam has been losing. There used to be a video out there where Um, I don't know if I can find it anymore because the guy stopped this channel. YouTube is a place where things come and go and things disappear. But this has been what's happening. And it makes sense when you see the overall death end of a particular world. Or maybe we're seeing the end of a particular chapter of this world where as what we always do, humanity overreached and said, oh, wow, we can measure balls falling from a tower in Italy. I bet you we can account for everything. No, can't do it. Because the more we know, the more we begin to learn that we don't know. So, God number one and God number two. A big part of why Jordan Peterson had an impact is he opened up what had always been known and been always part of the definition since the hebrew scribes of god so that's my god number one god number two it's not 20 minutes but i hope it sheds some light on the conversation leave a comment